¿A quién? As you make your way back in, I'm going to pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you in Jesus' name for the joys of fellowship. As we were just, the music was playing during our break, we want to be caught up in the fellowship. We want the, uh, the, the, the mix of all the saints that have gone before us, the angelic realm, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and the body of Christ, Lord Jesus, to be mixed together in one dynamic fellowship. We believe, Heavenly Father, that you can do this like no other. We believe, Lord Jesus, that all it takes is two people in you for, for, for this to happen. We believe, Lord, that just two can, can bring your presence. It guarantees your presence. If those two will, 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 will believe for you. And so we ask, Lord, that you would come into our fellowship, that you would inform it and infuse it, and you would give us life beyond Sunday mornings. We don't want the highlight of our weeks to be this morning. We want there to be glory after glory after glory, that we would be transformed moment by moment into ever-increasing glory, into your very likeness. And so come, Lord Jesus. Amen. Awesome. Well, as we settle back in, I've got a couple things on my mind I want to say. One, I'm going to give you just kind of a heads up, an assignment that'll make more sense at the end of the message than it does now. But if I say it now, I think maybe it'll, it'll maybe get ingrained uh, later. So how many of you, let's just start here. How many of you are aware that today is Super Bowl Sunday? Some of you are happy that it's Super Bowl Sunday, all right? How, okay, and so how many of you plan to go to a Super Bowl party or host a Super Bowl party? Or how many of you just plan to watch the Super Bowl? How many of you aren't going to watch the Super Bowl? Wow. So here's my assignment to you on Super Bowl Sunday, okay? Particularly for those of you who are going to be watching it, even with another person or with friends or family. You ready for this assignment? It's not hard, and it'll make more sense to you at the end. You ready? I want you to serve communion while you watch the Super Bowl. I want you to make the Lord's Supper the center of this, of this, in your home, in your place. Again, I think this will make more sense as we get to the end of it, but I want you to bring communion. Maybe you do it at halftime. Maybe you do it in the beginning. I want you to, to celebrate the Lord's Supper as a way of, of, of proclaiming the most significant meal that's ever been offered. Hold on to that thought. I think it'll make more sense to you when we're done. So uh, here we are on the 0202, 2020, uh, on the 2nd of February. And, uh, you know, I want to get into a message that in a way is kind of a opportunistic, cheesy, uh, low-hanging fruit kind of message in terms of the day. But in a way, I think it also has some profound significance for us. Well, I'm sure it does. Um, but I, yeah, yeah, exactly. But I want, to, I want to just say, just to lay our hearts bare, um, number one, I'm, I'm thrilled, Ralea, that you're here this morning. And the Warrens. And I, I thank Jesus for your life and for your healing 
And I'm also terribly sad still. You know, I, I just think a lot about that when a um, 98-year-old person lives their whole life and passes away. You can, you can kind of just have a simple little memorial service and you wrap up their life in kind of a neat little bow because their life has been full, right? But when we lose somebody, uh, you know, like Eli, uh, so tragically and so ahead of time, it doesn't feel fitting or even possible to do that in some sort of simple symbolic service. We need a multitude of opportunities to gather our hearts together and to come before the Lord, some days to come before the Lord and go, Lord, we don't understand at all. And other days just to say, Lord, we celebrate you and trust you in in the goodness. And this is a day I had a chance to uh, speak with the reporters that were out there. And they said, well, what, you know, kind of a, what, What's, what's the significance of this day? And I said, it's Genesis 50-20, that God will make something good come out of this tragic situation. There will be the saving of many lives. There may be somebody's life who, who's, who is going to be, you know, ne- deeply in need of blood, and somebody who gave blood this morning is going to provide the blood that saves their life, and the only reason they're here to give blood today is they want to honor Eli. I, I, I don't understand the significance of all that, but I thank God that there, that that tragic accident isn't the end of the story. I believe this boy's life. I, we can get really hyperbolic about people when they've passed away and start saying things like, you know, so-and-so always said or always did or what, you know. But I, I, I can tell you this. I, I'm confident that Eli would love this morning. All the, the vans out there down by the river, <laughs> the shirts, the pic, picture animations going, you know, viral inside our churches, you know, I think... Um, we need to monetize it. Isn't that, isn't that what he was looking to do, to monetize? <laughs> he wanted to get monetized. So I think he would relish this day. I don't think he would shrink from this day at all. Many of us would go, you know, I really not want the attention to be on me. I think he'd say, bring it. Bring it. And then I think he could shine it back on Jesus. And so I, I'm just being honest with you that I still stand up here and I fight feelings. And I want you to know that if you're in that same boat, it's okay. As I've said a number of times, our emotions, even as a swing, are not incompatible with our faith. All right. So with that being said, let's open our Bibles to the book of Hebrews, chapter 10. And this is how I'm going to uh, encapsulate this day in a way that is kind of low-hanging fruit. The title of my message is There's Power in the Blood. And... um, and I'm going to have to go all over the place. Uh, it's, not my, I, it's not my favorite way to preach to kind of what we may call topical preaching where you have to kind of find a lot of ways to, to... But I need to give you something of a theology, you know, of the blood. I could do this really in a series of messages might be the more fitting way, but I'm going to try to uh, cram a lot, of, uh, a lot of doctrine or a lot of the Lord's teaching on this in a, in a compressed period of time, so you need to listen fast. So we'll, we'll just ground it in this word because I think that the most significant thing I want you to take away from this is, is that because the blood of Jesus has been shed on our behalf, corporately and individually, we can and should persevere. So uh, here we are. This is Hebrews chapter 10, starting in verse 19. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have been, I, I'm reading out of my Bible, so it might be a bit different. Since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus. There it is. We have confidence, we have, 
we have not just the ability to enter into the holy place, the, you know, the place where you're not supposed to go and in terms of rabbinical Judaism and temple, you know, Judaism, the, the holy place and the holy of holies is not a place that anyone except the high priest, you know, would go. We have the ability, but not just the ability, we have the confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way. That new and living way is the shed blood of Jesus, open for us through the curtain that is his body, his shed blood. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience. Sprinkled, what can wash away our sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful, and let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. The day is the, 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 the return of the Lord. Let's pray. Jesus, we, we ask that you would, you would grant us uh, some significant understanding of the way in which our boldness and our persistence, our perseverance and faith is empowered, is catalyzed, and is uh, put into action, made real by your blood. We need to, we need to appropriate this in our heart as fuel, and, and we need to live in, it in the, as this passage says, the confidence of what it means for us to be able to be rightly related to you and intimately related to you. And as the Apostle Paul says, seated with you in heavenly places. So we ask, Lord, that you would speak this word deep into our heart. In Jesus' name, amen. So a little background just on this passage. The book of Hebrews, I think, could be summarized as saying that Jesus is just the better everything. It's just Jesus is the better everything. And the whole book is kind of laying this out in different ways. And when you get into chapter 9 and 10 of, of, of the book of Hebrews, you get into the discussion about the blood of Jesus and, and that Jesus came as a great high priest and he did something different. Basically, the, the writer of Hebrews is saying that there is this system in place that I'm going to get into a little bit of sacrifice being made on behalf of the people uh, for atonement and to have right relationship with God and that sacrifice would happen over and over and over year in and year out and that Jesus came to make that sacrifice once and for all to offer himself and to shed his blood as a once for all sacrifice and the writer of Hebrews says the way it worked is he says like day after day after day the priest would stand and perform religious duties and it says Again and again, they'd offer the same sacrifices over and over, which can never fully take away sins. I'm going to maybe break that down a bit. There's a difference between what the sacrifice was able to accomplish in terms of relationship with God and what Jesus' sacrifice accomplished. It says, but when Jesus comes, when that priest, the great high priest, comes and offers a once and for all sacrifice for sins, he offered it and he sat down. You see the difference? The priest perpetually standing and performing religious duties. What standing and performing suggests to you? The work isn't done, is it? The work's ongoing. Jesus offers himself, sheds his blood, and sits down, suggesting what? It's done. And so Jesus is being put forth as the, the better sacrifice, as the better blood. And it, then it says, therefore, brothers and sisters, 
since we have confidence to enter into the most holy place by the shed blood of Jesus, this is exactly the point they're getting at. And so the question, I'm anticipating the question you're already asking, particularly if you're honest and you're young, because, um, you know, you, you might want to watch a show on TV and your, your young ones and your mom or dad might say, you know, I'm not going to let you watch it. There's too much blood, right? Blood and gore, you know? And so you're like, the, the Bible, all this talk about blood, why? Why blood? Why blood? Is that a question that you have? Okay, I know you do. You don't have to say yes or no. So here's the question, or here's the answer to that question. The book of Leviticus offers it in a very simple and succinct way. It says, and I don't, I don't have all these scriptures on the screen. You just have to kind of jot them down and go look them up yourself. But Leviticus 17.11 says, for the life of a creature is in the blood. The life is in the blood. We know this, don't we? The life is in the blood. A living creature is kept alive by the blood that pulses through its veins and, and through its heart and circulates. The life of living creatures is in the blood. And I have given it to you, the blood, to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It's the blood that makes atonement for one's life. So God is essentially saying, and I'll break this down, that, that he set up a system that says essentially that the life is in the blood, and so if there's a need for there to be atonement or sacrifice on behalf of something that went wrong, the cost of it is blood. And, and why? Because the life is in the blood. Now, that might seem kind of macabre or gross to you, but I can tell you that even in the Old Testament, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, there's something beautifully preservative and protective of life that's within this. You know why? Somebody pokes your eye out, you can't kill them. Somebody cuts your finger off, you can't kill them. You just take their finger, an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Life is highly valued, and so much so that God says that the, you know, that, that the life of a creature is in the blood. This is the most significant you know, physiological source for you to be able to keep upright and mobile and walking around. There's life in the blood. But let me go back further to try to, to, to unpack this because actually in the very, very, very beginning, you see this unpacked. You see this come to light. You see this system, you know, come out in the very beginning. So you have a, um, a husband and a wife together in the garden without shame and naked. And I know there's young kids in here today, so it's a little bit like, oh, but let me tell you, that's not a bad thing. Someday you'll get that. But what happens is, is the enemy enters into the situation. Satan comes in and, and, and offers, you know, significant temptation to the, to the woman and the man. And they fall for the temptation. They do what they're not supposed to do. And all of a sudden, they fall from this perfect place of being in a garden, unashamed, great communion, fellowship with God to this place of being completely ruptured and set apart from God. And all of a sudden, you know the first thing that happens to them when they, when they fall from this place? Do you know what happens to them, kids? All of a sudden, they become aware they're naked. You know, this happens with kids. You, you know, I, I, you, you maybe don't know it yet, and if you're not at the age of, of, of realizing this yet, I hope I don't ruin it for you. But there's something amazing when you're really young and you can just go take a bath and, you, you know, you get out and you run around the house naked. And then all of a sudden, one day, it all changes, right? Where you're, like, mortified that any, you're like, how dare you come in here while I'm in the bath, right? I mean, and so there's this almost like age of, well, not almost, age of accountability where things begin to click in for us. And why? Why is that? We're not made by God to be naked and ashamed. We're made by God to be naked and unashamed. But because we're all products of this fall, we have this innate thing of, 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 Shame, and the shame comes because they realize God can see them 
and see their fallenness, and so they hide. And God says, where are you? He doesn't say this because he can't find them. He wants to expose them in this. And so they come out, and they're exposed. And then in Genesis chapter 3, 21, God does something. It says, this is Jeff's paraphrase, that he, he kills an animal and takes the skin of the animal and creates for them clothing to cover their nakedness. Do you see what happens? The very first time that there's a sacrifice made, it's God making a sacrifice on behalf of people who don't deserve it to cover their shame. What do you have to do when you kill that animal to get its skin? You have to shed its blood. So blood is spilt for the very first time by God to create clothing to cover the shame of man and women, Adam and Eve. Something you should take away from that is this. There is great privilege and great burden in dominion. God places man and woman in the garden and says that they're over all things, that they have dominion over all things. That God doesn't take the blood of a human and make a skin to cover animals. The, the privilege is, is that God would do this on behalf of humanity because he's placed humanity at the, at the absolute pinnacle of his love relationship. He said, all creation is a platform on which I'm going to play out this love relationship with you, man and woman. And at the same time, there's a great burden because we realize that our sin is costly. Our sin costs life. Even in the very beginning, we see that. Satan ushers in shame through temptation, and the torment begins, and then mankind has fallen, and God responds with grace and covering. Interestingly enough, the Bible has tons to say about the power of blood and the significance of blood. Did you know that blood has a voice? Book of Genesis chapter 4 tells us in the very first brothers, Cain and Abel, that Cain kills Abel because he's jealous of Abel's better um, uh, sacrifice or offering. And, and Genesis 4 says this, that the blood has a voice. Abel's innocent blood cries out from the ground. The Lord said, what have you done, Cain? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. This is the beginning of what you might call the doctrine of the shedding of innocent blood. And I believe that this is a passage that's appropriately used throughout history to speak to human injustice wherever it may be. William Wilberforce used this passage to talk about the ending of the slave, the slave trade. The pro-life movement uses this passage appropriately, very appropriately, to talk about the shedding of innocent blood, those who are most innocent, whose lives are taken, and how the blood cries out in the ground for justice. The Bible goes further in Genesis 9 to actually say there's a day of reckoning or accounting You know, God says, and for your lifeblood, I will surely demand an accounting. I will demand an accounting from every human, every animal. I will demand an accounting for the life of another human being. Whoever sheds human blood, by humans shall their blood be shed. For in the image of God, God has made mankind. In other words, there's this all of a sudden in just a few chapters into Genesis, there's this great disruption and God is saying, look, I value life so much that when you shed blood, blood will be shed. It's all about... This thing in our peace with God has been so ruptured by our sin and because the life is in the blood that the, that, that the, way, of, the way of peace is now made back to God through blood sacrifice. The blood is the price to pay. The wages of sin is death. But the question becomes this. If Jeff goes out today after the service and runs up to Jersey Mike's to get a sandwich and he speeds the whole way there and gets pulled over and gets 
pulled over for speeding and a ticket is issued, in whose name is that ticket going to be issued? And who should pay for that ticket? So whose blood should be shed for Jeff's sin? Jeff's blood should be shed for Jeff's sin. And this is the system or this is the quandary that the, the people who want to follow God find them in prior to Jesus is whose blood would be shed. And so the blood of animals and bulls and goats is, you know, and, and, and birds and so forth are shed to, to, in, to uh, attempt to create a way of atonement that would keep man in decent relationship with God until the better sacrifice comes. And so the question, whose blood should be shed for my sin, is mine. But this is what God says about this. In Colossians 1, he says, For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in Jesus, and through Jesus to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. So we have this plan that you see perfectly stated in Colossians, that God says, you know, the plan has always been this, that I will make a, a way once and for all for, the, for man to have peace with me through the shed blood of Jesus. And you go, wow, this is pretty remarkable. You go, Genesis, it starts, where does it end? I can tell you that the, it ends in Revelation. It goes from Genesis to Revelation, the very last mention of the blood of Jesus being proficient for us to do what we, what we need with God is when, once again, the writer of Revelation says that Satan came and he did all this stuff to attack us and to betray us and to tempt us and to lure us away. But it says that we ultimately have victory over him. In Revelation 12, 11, we triumph over the enemy, by, over the evil one, by the blood of the Lamb. The word of our testimony. Don't forget the third part. And not loving our life unto death. You know, not saying I'll do anything to cling to my life. I'll lay my life down, you know, if that's what you ask. So the point is, is that from the very beginning, the book of Genesis and the fall in the garden, blood is shed to cover shame. In the very end, we recognize that our overcoming is not just covering us, but ultimate overcoming by the blood of the Lamb. So all of that I offer as a precursor to offer you this. What kind of power does the blood of Jesus have for us? What kind of power? There's power in the blood. What kind of power? Like, you know, a little bit of power? Um, is it a power to fuel us for f- six more days until next Sunday? What kind of power? Well, I'm going to give you uh, four answers to that that I think are simple and succinct, and you could take one of them and live by it, but all four of them together form dynamite for you, spiritual dynamite. So you ready? First, the blood of Jesus has the power to make you ready for heaven. The blood of Jesus Christ has the power to make us ready for heaven. How many of you are ready for heaven? Yeah, it qualifies. The blood of Jesus qualifies you for heaven. It's the entry ticket into heaven. All believers, if you are a follower of Jesus, are qualified to be part of God's family. All believers, if you follow Jesus, if you've bent your knee to him, you've gone under the waters of baptism, and you've, you've accepted him as Lord and Savior, and you'll follow him, you are now qualified to be part of this eternal kingdom. This is the, or this is the conundrum in it, though. I'm not qualified to do much of anything. I'm not qualified to do brain surgery or drill teeth uh, or fly an airplane or fix your car. I'm not qualified to play for the Jaguars. 
anymore? No, never. Shoot, I'm not even qualified to play for FSU. Well, maybe FSU. <laughs> I was going to say Florida, but I, you know. So the point is, I'm not qualified to do a lot of things, but I'm qualified to go to heaven because of the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Because the, 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 the shedding of the, of, of the blood of Jesus covers my sin, and there's a difference between the blood of animals and the blood of Jesus. The blood of animals was sufficient to, to give me something in the moment, to do something for me at that time, uh, but it could not ultimately and completely and fully and wholly atone for my sin. It could make me right with God at that moment, but it couldn't impart righteousness into me. But Jesus comes along, and uh, a sinless Christ takes upon himself the sin of all people, of all mankind, once and for all. He takes that to the cross, bears it on Calvary, suffers and dies for it, and in exchange, he covers every single person who follows him with perfect righteousness. Let me see if I can illustrate. I need a volunteer. need a couple of volunteers, maybe. Tatiana, come on up here. You'll do. Maybe I need another one. I don't know. All right, come on up, Grant. No, I, I'm going to have Grant do it. I'm sorry. I'm going to have Grant do it. Oh, you can stand up here too, but I was going to have Grant do it. You want to stand up here with him? Okay, come on. Hey, Grant just gave a devotion. It is, it is, it is homeschool at it, it, Elijah Group, didn't you? You gave a devotion? Yeah. You're going to be a preacher now? I want to be a youth pastor. That's it? No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. That's awesome. That's actually amazing. Amazing. All right. So you stand over here, Grant. So let's suppose that Tatiana is wearing this coat on top of her other coat. Thank you for helping her. And so let's suppose that, that this coat that Tatiana is wearing reveals the state of her soul. Like you could see everything that's in her life on this coat. You could see all that she is, all that she's done, all that she thinks, all, you know, because of this coat. It's on the outside and you can see it. Let's say that every commandment she's ever broken is right here on the outside of this coat and you can, and she can see it. We can all see it. Let's say every needy person that she ignored, you know, every time that she spoke a, a, a nasty word to somebody else, every lustful thought, every curse, everything that she's ever done, everything here, what, would you say that garment is a pretty filthy garment? But she has to wear the coat, doesn't she? It's her coat. And she can't, it's, she can't put it on you. It's her coat to wear. And no, no matter how much she cleans it, no matter how much she scrubs it off, nothing can remove the dirt, the stain, the smudges that are on this coat. Now let's just suppose Grant's going to play the role, of, youth pastor Grant's going to play the role of Jesus. Let's just say that Jesus approaches Tatiana what does Tatiana do when Jesus approaches? She hides. Why does she hide? Because she's ashamed. Because she realizes that the coat that bears a state of her soul is really like the most shameful nakedness you could ever have. You are completely exposed because Jesus sees this. And so when Jesus approaches, Tatiana hides. 
she, she hides because she doesn't want him to see the filthy coat and everything bad that it reveals about her. So what Jesus says to Tatiana is he says, hey, let me check out that coat. So take it off and give it to Grant. So, so even though Tatiana has misery about the, the, this, she's suddenly has a little bit of hope that maybe something different can happen because she turns the coat over to Jesus. So, so go ahead and put that coat on. That's like an official pastor coat too, so you probably wear it well. And so, and so it is very big. It's a lot of sin. And then, and then Jesus steps over and he marches off in Tatiana's coat to the cross. And he wears it on the cross. And he bears the penalty of all of the sin and all of the nastiness that represents the state of her soul, and he wears it. And at the very moment when he cries out from the cross, it's finished, and he breathes his last breath, suddenly Tatiana becomes aware that she's wearing a new coat. Let's say it's the coat that she has on here. And instantly she recognizes that it's the coat that Jesus had on when he approached her. That she's no longer wearing a coat that, that identifies her by all of the bad things in her life. She's wearing a coat that, that, that demonstrates the righteousness. There's not a smudge. There's not a stain. It's a coat of perfect righteousness. And she can walk now, not run and hide, but walk confidently into the very presence of God, boldly approaching the throne by the shed blood of Jesus because she's now clothed in righteousness and the righteousness of Christ. Only it's more than just a coat. It's a whole new life. The blood of Jesus has the power not just to kind of take the things that heaven has. Heaven, God has righteousness. God doesn't have more or less righteousness. He just is righteous, right? You with me? And he has the power through atonement to impute or to give whatever heaven has. He can put some of that on her. And that's what the blood of animals did is it put something like righteousness on us, a covering, like an animal skin to cover our shame. But the death of Jesus goes beyond this imputing, giving us something heaven has. And it actually, when, when Tatiana puts on the coat of Jesus, it goes into her and it's imparted into her. It actually becomes part of who she is. And now she's actually identified not just by a coat on the outside, but by a whole new life of righteousness a whole new identity that makes her ready for heaven. She's no longer identified by the dark state of her soul. She's identified by the shed blood of Jesus. It makes her ready for heaven. All right, thank you. You can go sit down. Thank you. What's that? You wear it well. So it's not just the power to make me ready for heaven. The blood has the power to rescue me. The word deliver in the Bible really means to rescue someone. And, and it, it has the idea of rushing to rescue somebody. Deliverance has the idea of somebody's in a really bad place, drowning, and, needs, and you rush in to help them. Uh, that, that's the idea of deliverance that we find in Scripture. Even as we, we see in this passage in Hebrews 10 about about drawing near to God with full assurance of faith because our hearts have been sprinkled and cleansed from a guilty conscience. There's the sense within there of, of God's, uh, of Jesus rushing in to rescue us from this place. And without Jesus, we're trapped. We're trapped by, by, by Satan in this spiritual darkness and death. And, but, but, but Jesus comes to, he rushes in at just the right time to rescue us from darkness and death. Think about it, if you will. Think about it in your own way. There are some situations in which we cannot deliver ourselves. Agreed? a large ocean liner like a like a cruise ship goes out in the middle of the Atlantic and gets stuck the passengers can't get out and push the boat to shore 
Or like one old preacher used to put it, if a man is drowning, he can't save himself by grabbing his hair and pulling himself up. We can't do this for ourselves. And the rescue that comes through, uh, the rescue salvation for us can't come from within. It has to come from above and from without. And so everyone without Christ is in great danger because all of us have sinned and fallen short. This is what the Bible says. The wages of sin, the price for sin is death. It's dying because the cost of our sin is blood. When the blood shed, the blood flows out of us. We die, and we die eternally apart from Christ. But, but as believers, we can say, God has rescued me from the power of death. He's delivered me, and he did it through the cross. So the power of the, the, the blood of Jesus has the power to rescue us as well. The power to qualify me, the power to rescue me. Third, it has the power to redeem me. Do you know this word? Do you know this word redeem, redemption? It's a word that you probably, you know, you think about it in Bible terms because you hear it all the time, but really it's a marketplace term, right? What do you do when you go and you, on, you want to buy something and there's a coupon that's, you know, 50% off. You, you redeem the coupon. You turn the coupon in and you get something in return for it. And so in redemption, what we have is we have redemption through his blood as is, 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 is we learn. It's deliverance or rescue or freedom that's obtained by paying a price. It's freedom. It's, it's deliverance with a price paid, a cost, a ransom even. Jesus Christ redeems or pays the price for someone, for everyone who trusts in him. That's why in Matthew 20, Jesus says, the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom you know, for many. 1 Peter 1 says this, you're not redeemed with corruptible things. You're not bought back. You're not bought out of your sin with things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers. 1 Peter saying, you live the way you live because it's passed down from generation to generation to generation. You're stuck in your sin, and you don't get bought back out of that by silver and gold, stuff that can just, it's just corruptible. You get bought back with the precious blood of Jesus as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. The blood of Jesus has the power to redeem you from spiritual slavery. Many years ago, a, 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 an old school pastor named A.J. Gordon he was in Boston, and a, a, a young boy comes up to him one day in front of the church, and he was carrying with him a, a cage that held a bunch of, you know, scrawny little nervous birds from the neighborhood that he'd caught. And Pastor Gordon said to him, you know, where'd you get those birds? And he said, I trapped them out in that field. And he said, what are you going to do with them? He's like, I don't know. I'm going to carry them around for a while, play with them, and shake them up a bit. And when they get kind of done, I'll feed them to an old cat that lives behind my house. And the preacher says to him, well, I'll tell you what, what if I buy them from you? And he says, Why? You don't want them. They're, they're old, wild birds, and they don't sing. And the pastor said, well, I'll give you $2 for the cage and the bird. And the kid said, all right, but it's a bad deal. Like, you're making a bad bargain. I'll gladly take your money. So they make the exchange, and the boy goes away whistling because he feels like he's gotten the deal of the century. The pastor goes around the back of the church, opens the door to the small cage, and lets the birds fly out into the sky. The next Sunday, he takes the empty cage into the pulpit and uses it as an illustration to illustrate Jesus coming to seek and to save and to redeem us and to set us free. And he talks about Jesus paying for the loss with his own precious blood. And at the end, Pastor Gordon said these words. He said, that boy told me these birds were not singers. But when I released them and they winged their way toward the skies, they sang. They sang a new song. And it's as if their words were redeemed, redeemed, redeemed. There's enough power in the blood of Jesus to pay the penalty for your sin and to redeem you from a hell-bound life. All right, finally, 
It has the power to release us. It has the power to qualify us for heaven. It has the, uh, it, it has the power to rescue us. It has the power to redeem us, to rescue us with a price paid. And finally, it has the power to release us. Being released, being released is the idea behind the word forgiveness. Do you know when you live in unforgiveness towards somebody else, you actually keep them on a hook? Do you know you actually keep yourself on a hook? And the idea of forgiveness is is when you let go of that offense, that bitterness that you have towards somebody, you actually let you and them off the hook. You release them. And this is a big part of what's meant in pastoral counseling. When we pray prayers and say, you got to let it go. you got to let them go. And when we let them go, we fully let them go. And the Apostle Paul explains this concept in Ephesians 1 when he says, in Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins or the release into freedom. And the word forgiveness is... Is, is talking about a pardon, or it's like being pardoned from jail. Do you know when you, if you commit a crime, you can go to jail for life, but there's a hope for pardon, and you can get pardoned? It, even though you're, the penalty should be the rest of your life, you could be pardoned and set free? You're aware of this concept? This is exactly what happens in the, in the spiritual realm when we are, the penalty for the lives that we've led should be you know, death and separation from God. But because of the shed blood of Jesus, there's enough power in the blood to actually release us from the sentence, to pardon us, to let us go from the sins as though they'd never been committed. And we get this pardon only because Jesus did what? He paid the price. He took the full punishment on the cross for all of our sins. King David said it this way in Psalm 32, blessed is he whose transgression, whose sin is forgiven, whose sin is covered by God. There's a story, and I'm going to f- tell this story and then just kind of close. There's a story that I, I read recently. Uh, does anybody know the name Anne Graham Lotz? She, Anne Graham Lotz is the daughter of Billy Graham. And... Uh, She's a pretty powerful minister in her own right. Anybody ever heard her preach or teach? She's a pretty powerful teacher. I heard her teach years and years and years ago live. It was, I, I still remember her, her preaching. And she tells a story about visiting a woman on death row. No pardon there, right? She's, she's going to die for, her, um, for her, her crime. She had convicted multiple murders. But during her time in prison, she'd become a Christian, a profound Christian, and she professed Jesus as, as her Lord and Savior. But as her execution drew near, as the date drew near, she began to fear that maybe, maybe the, her sins, her life, her past were too much to be forgiven. I don't need you to raise your hands right now, but have you ever thought to yourself or wondered, are my sins too much to be forgiven? I mean, maybe, you know, you go, well, I'm just a garden variety sinner. I've told a lie here or there. Maybe you've, though, got stuff in your life where you're like, man, I don't know. I don't know if I'm really forgiven. This woman is facing the ultimate end of her life, and she's saying something like, maybe God's grace wasn't meant for someone like me. And Graham Lotz says this to her. She says, have you ever been to the beach? She's like, yeah, I've been to the beach. And she said, have you ever noticed the holes in the sand? And you guys ever been to the beach? You ever noticed the holes in the sand? There's all kinds of holes in the sand. She said, for example, when the sand crabs and they, they make their way and the birds, they, they, they make tiny little pinholes in the sand, right? You've seen these? We live enough close enough to the beach, you've seen these? 
And she said, you know, but also little children go back and forth and they play and they bring their buckets and their shovels and they dig holes and they make sandcastles and forts and they make bigger holes than the birds and the crabs make, right? You've seen these? And she says, and there's an, oftentimes, you can see it along, along our coast when they dredge after storms, giant earth-moving equipment that comes in and moves the dirt around and makes these big deep holes, right? You've seen this? And then she says to her, she says, well, when the tide comes in, what does the water cover? Everything. Not only does it, the water cover everything, what does the water do with the sand when it washes the sand in? It fills the holes. Does it fill the pinholes? Does it fill the little castle holes? Does it fill the heavy equipment holes? In the same exact way, the blood of Jesus is able to cover over anything, no matter how big or small it is. The Bible says if you've broken one little pinhole law, you're guilty of breaking all the laws. So the blood of Jesus better be capable of covering any hole, any gap, any sin, and it is, and it is. All right, Brian, come on up. I'm done. I want to close with this one more verse. And then the practical side. The Apostle John, the one that Jesus, that was the beloved of Jesus, he has 12 that follow, three that are closer, one it seems it's closest of all. This guy who is so close to Jesus that I think he even has the, it says he can recline back into the chest of Jesus. I think he has even the heart of the Lord in terms of like understanding deep things. When this guy who knew Jesus that well sees him in all of his glory, he has a revelation when he's in exile on an island called Patmos and he goes up, he's escorted into the heavens and he sees Jesus in all his glory. And when John, the beloved, sees Jesus in this state, he falls out like a ghost. It's so overwhelming. The glory of God is so overwhelming. Jesus is so right. His righteousness is so clear to him that he actually falls out like Byron giving blood. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Low, that's, that was low blow. Oh, hey, hey, come on. Call names. <laughs> but this is what John says. This is how John greets. He, he, he's so full of revelation that he has to he, has to, he knows he has to communicate these messages to these, to these seven churches. And he says, in Revelation chapter 1, verses 4 to 6, he says, John, I, John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, Maranatha, and from the seven spirits who were before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth, to him who loved us, and washed us from our sins in his own blood and has made us kings and priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Did you catch that part? Not not only does he wash us from our sins in his own blood. That's a good deal, right? Exchanging my sin for his righteousness in and of itself is enough. If that's all I ever get from him, that's enough. But because it's different from the shed blood of animals, because his blood is good enough once and for all to take care of everything, and it's imparted into me, it doesn't just take away, you know, this 
this one thing I did, it actually changes who I am. And it says, by the shed blood of Jesus, it washed me from his own blood. He has now made us kings and priests. You follow Jesus? You love Jesus? Do you follow him? He's made you royalty. He's made you a priesthood. We remember the Lord's blood because he loved us and washed us from our sins. But the blood of Jesus paid the price for every one of you, not just to be clean and to be right with him, but to actually live as kings and priests. And so my admonition to you tonight is when we go and we celebrate you know, when we, when, when, when our, I mean, look, I love, I love sports, but I can tell you in our nation that this is like a, a holy altar day. I want you to go out as priests and royalty amongst the world, and I want you to, to bring communion to your party. Are you going to a party? I just offer this in grace as a challenge. Man, bring communion. Bring the, 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 the bread that is his body. And what does he say that the wine is? He says, it's my blood of the covenant given to you and to many for the forgiveness of sins. Bring that into the room. Go be kings and priests because the blood of Jesus has been shed on your behalf. It qualifies you. It rescues you. It pays the price. It ransoms you. Especially grieves me, chokes me up, and makes me stop. Because if you're not in Him, then the only way that you have to pay for your life is through your own blood. It's that's the best you have to offer. You appear naked and ashamed. So I'm going to ask you to stand. offer you an opportunity. You can come to the altar and thank God for what he's done for you. Thank him for his shed blood. You can, or you can come to this altar and you can say, you know, Lord, I'm done fighting my own battles. I'm done attempting to atone for my own life. Something has to pull me up. I can't pull myself up out of the the quagmire by my own hair. Come, Lord Jesus, and Pluck me out of the out of the darkness and give me life. And so, Father, we pray in Jesus' name that you would do that very thing. I thank you for salvation. I thank you for the day of my salvation. And I thank you for your imparted righteousness that helps me to become more and more like you each day. Lord Jesus, I want that. I want more. And I say, pour out your blood. Wash us clean. Make us whole. For the one who's furthest from you, Lord Jesus, I pray that you would grab them by grace, that you'd rescue them, you'd wrestle them ashore, and that you would set their feet back on the ground, and you would clean them up and put a new coat on them, a new identity, that you would set us up as kings and priests to the world around us, and to the one who thinks they need you the least, the most prideful one amongst us, I pray you'd shatter their pride. There's no shame, there's no shame in in laying our life down for Jesus. So come, Father, and don't just cover our shame, but remove it.
the power of your blood. In Jesus' name, if you feel led, you come forward. Would you be free?